I would be passing new ordinances relating to stiff criminal penalties for anyone who held a rave. Promoter, the guy who owned the building. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. I'm Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. A recent Rasmussen poll showed that half of Democratic voters think Biden won't serve out his entire four-year term if he's elected, meaning they think Kamala Harris could become the president before 2024. Now, I don't know if I agree with that, but if he does win a second term, that could be a real possibility here. Um, Biden's foreign policy record has been well-established, of course, during his time as senator. Several presidential runs. I don't know if people remember that he's run for president before. He had to drop out because of accusations of plagiarism, as well, of course, as serving for eight years as Obama's vice president. I think people are a lot more familiar with Kamala's record as Attorney General of California, but her foreign policy remains kind of a mystery because she's never really held a foreign policy position. Uh, Sarah Lazar writes that in these times, Senator Kamala Harris has not made war and militarism a centerpiece of her presidential campaign. She's given no major foreign policy speech. On her campaign website, Harris's only statement on foreign policy is just over 500 words, and it's more screed against Trump who's mentioned seven times, than a cogent vision. So to join us now to discuss more about Biden and Kamala's foreign policy record and the Democrats' imperialism problem, we're joined by Branko Marchatich, writer at Jacobin, fellow at In These Times, and author of the book Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Thank you so much for joining us, Branko. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we begin, I want to make clear that uh, Trump is reprehensible, right? He's running on a far-right extremist platform in the U.S. that frankly terrifies me. But I think when it comes to foreign policy, the Trump administration and potential Biden administration's platform become much more indistinguishable. Any kind of thoughts on this uniform bipartisan foreign policy agenda that pretty much continues no matter who is in office? There are obviously tweaks and, and, and some differences. You know, I think uh, we would all agree uh, on the left that, that Biden, his foreign policy is obviously preferable to Trump's in, in a number of ways. The problem is, as you say, it's not dist- distinguishable enough from Trump's, uh, you know, to make a really, really fundamental difference from the, the destructive direction of, of U.S. foreign policy over the past, you know, let's say 100 years. Uh, and and the tough thing about it is that unlike domestic policy, unlike uh, something like like economics, um, there isn't really a popular base that that counts foreign policy uh, as its kind of chief issue in the United States. And you know that that makes sense. Obviously, people are a lot more concerned with their kind of daily lives and the kind of bread and butter issues that affect them. But it does make it difficult to um, if, if you don't have a leader who. Uh, is actually intent on really making a fundamental break from foreign policy, it makes it very hard to build up that kind of public pressure to uh, reorient them on that, on that, uh, you know, uh, on that field. So, um, you know, whoever it is, whether it's Trump or Biden, it's going to be hard going to really make them, to, to push them in a the direction that, uh, you know, I think we all uh, know foreign policy has to go. Yeah, and there does seem to be this superficiality now where, I mean, Trump ran somewhat in his campaign on being supposedly anti the Iraq war. And 
you know, it doesn't seem to line up with his actual actions. So, you know, other than this sort of this push that you're talking about, there now seems to be this other problem we're facing of people sort of superficially using anti-war rhetoric, but no actual no follow through. Let's move on to your actual book, because Joe Biden, from the entire spread of Democratic primary candidates, he did seem to be one of the most unappealing and right-wing ones of the whole bunch running against Trump in this election cycle. And your book extensively documents why this is the case. Talk a little bit about Joe Biden's history of basically being a right-wing politician in the Democratic Party and how this sort of rightward shift in the Democratic Party led to where we are today. Well, uh, there's this common theme that you hear now, uh, you know, with Biden kind of promising to be the next FDR. People often say, well, look, Biden's always been in the exact middle of the Democratic Party. He's always just followed where the winds have blown. Um, and so therefore, now that things have shifted left, he will just kind of he'll follow that shift. Um, and that's not really completely true. Uh, Biden, almost from the beginning, was a more conservative Democrat. Uh, you know, he was he was very much on the right leaning uh, wing of that party. He sort of ran this this campaign that initially got him into Congress, which was sort of a, a blending uh, of left and right, where he kind of went uh, conservative on, on certain social issues and, and issues like drugs and crime, but he went left in economics. But within a few years, he had uh, rapidly shifted on that and, and really turned to a very conservative Democrat, even on, on things like economics, and basically adopted the uh, the kind of Reaganomics um, view of, of domestic policy, you know, tax cuts, budget cutting, less government is better, that kind of thing. And um, through the 80s, Biden went on this kind of odyssey to turn the rest of the party uh, into into his sort of uh, creation, into, into what he thought the party should be going forward in the, in the Reagan era, which is one that basically uh, accepted a whole broad number uh, of, of policy planks that Reagan had kind of popularized. So the, the things I mentioned before, you know, budget cuts uh, and that kind of thing, um, uh, you know, cutting Social Security and Medicare. We heard a, a lot about that during the uh, campaign, during the, the primary campaign, um, but not just on domestic policy, on foreign policy as well. And he told Democrats, you know, he, he went around the, the country lecturing, you know, about how the the party cannot be what it was. Reagan shows that that uh, you know a more forceful foreign policy and a more interventionist foreign policy is what the public is craving, and that Democrats shouldn't be afraid to uh, you know go to war yeah. essentially in, in other parts of the country, uh, other parts of the world. I'm sorry, and that's basically what the Democratic Party turned into. I mean, Biden was not the the single-handed architect of this. You know, this was a a broad movement um, among a whole bunch of Democrats, many of them are from the South. Uh, and it was also one that was backed by uh, business interests that obviously, you know, preferred to have a political system that was dominated by two parties that were catering to their interests. Uh, and basically with, with Clinton's uh, win in 1992, that's really where the party went. Clinton helped to, to realize this vision for Biden and really push the party into a more pro-business, anti-government direction, um, that at the time they sort of justified to themselves. They were saying, well, no, we are actually saving the legacy of FDR by sort of updating it. Uh, but of course, the, the result of that was that they, they really, uh, in the Clinton years, they really ended up um, ending 
the New Deal legacy with things like welfare reform and that kind of thing. Would you mind just giving maybe one or two examples previous? I mean, because it's most notorious that, you know, that Biden was one of the supported the Iraq war, but previous to the Bush era, tell me some things that he supported that would be considered now looking back to be neocon regime change policies or sort of hawkish right foreign policy that Biden supported like in the 90s or even 80s. Well, yeah, in the 80s, he uh, signed up to, you know, all of Reagan's wars in Granada, for example. Uh, He supported uh, H.W. Bush's war in Panama, which is a really horrible war, uh, but considered a great triumph for Bush. Um, And, you know, at first, he actually opposed, to his credit, the Iraq war, Bush's, uh, Bush's father's Iraq war. Um, and, you know, using many of the arguments that, that I think we would sympathize with. Uh, but funnily enough, you know, once uh, Bush ended up going in and, and that war also came to, at least in the United States, appear like a great victory and, and sort of the cure to the Vietnam syndrome, this, this idea that, that, you know, see, America can win wars again. Look, look we managed to do this. This is something we should be proud of. Um, and when that happened, uh, Biden really changed his tune and he... he he basically disavowed his previous support for the Iraq war. And he said, well, you know what? I can admit a mistake. I was wrong. Bush had the guts to go into war and, and you know, bomb and, and kill these children. I mean, that, that's a that, that's my editorializing there. But, but basically, you know, that's in effect what he was saying. And <laughs> from there, he uh, was a pretty staunch uh, uh, supporter of, of hawkishness towards Iraq, really through the 90s. He wanted to put more pressure on them, um, you know, whether through through covert mechanisms or through sanctions and, and uh, you know, bombing and that kind of thing. And, and that really led to that fateful decision in 2002 to vote for the Iraq war. In many ways, that was sort of a an extension of some of these earlier efforts. And uh, some of the other other uh, wars or, or, or interventions that we might um, you know, we look at with a little more skeptical eyes now, nowadays is the, the wars in Yugoslavia, um, Biden uh, backed going into, uh, into Bosnia, and, and mm-hmm. he backed uh, involvement in Kosovo. Uh, he actually uh, uh, called the, uh, uh, the Kosovo leader, who uh, I think at the time there were reports, but certainly since then we, we, we know that, you know, they were, he was involved in organ harvesting and that kind of thing. Uh, Biden called him something like the, you know, the George Washington of, of Kosovo. Uh, so, you know, it, the the main thing I think to take away from this is that this was entirely a, a political decision. You know, Biden saw this as 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 helping him politically. He he saw a political downside to opposing war. It was a lot easier, as it always uh, or, or has been for a very long time in the United States. It's always easier to support war than to oppose it. And, you know, Biden, I think, just kind of went along with it. And it was a good way for him to posture as tough um, and, and to, to kind of mm-hmm. attempt to get rid of that, that uh, perception that Reagan really helped to instill that, you know, Democrats were just too weak on foreign policy. And that's, I feel like, the main problem with his whole campaign today is that he constantly is pandering to the right wing um, and asserting himself as, you know, really tough in all of these fields. And it's like, dude, I mean, what about the millions of disaffected leftists? I, I guess this is the whole trajectory of this full throttled endorsement of neoliberalism, which got us to where we are today, which is we have one right wing party, which is the Democratic Party and one extreme right party, 
in an interview, you said it was like one of the most extreme right-wing parties in the entire Western world. And I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, well, I, you know, I would just add that uh, the campaign so far has really gone exactly how, if you look at Biden's history, you would expect it to go. As you say, he's been kind of uh, pandering to the right um, and, and not really giving a damn about his, his left flank and just taking it for granted. This is how Biden has always won elections, aside from that very first one in 1972. Uh, the, the one thing that has surprised me is Biden... Uh, through his career, has had this tendency to when there's a kind of right-wing frenzy about something, whether it's drugs, crime, you know, foreign policy, whatever, he tends to, or he has tended to go uh, and try and posture even further right than them. And, you know, if there's one sort of positive I can take away from this campaign, it's that he sort of hasn't completely done that in this campaign. He He's still posturing his right, but he hasn't, for example, uh, you know, been kind of demanding that Trump send soldiers to uh, onto U.S. soil to to uh, stop the the riots and protests that are happening over police brutality. <laughs> which honestly, uh, an earlier Biden, a younger Biden, may well have done. He he during the war on terror, he he said that maybe it's time to revisit the law and and think about um, actually allowing U.S. troops to be deployed on U.S. soil. So. Unbelievable. This was in response uh, to the war on terror, he said that? Yeah, uh, there was a, I think it was in 2002, I, I might have the, have the date wrong here, but there was, um, I think it was in Buffalo, there were a couple of terrorists or accused terrorists who were, who were arrested. And at the time, the Bush administration had weighed up actually sending troops to, to arrest them. But in the end, you know, there was an outcry and, and decided not to. But, but Biden had told the papers at the time that, well, you know what, maybe, you know, times have changed and it might be, it might be time to, to rethink that idea. Horrifying. Yikes. Uh, well, let's get into Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria here, because despite having led the effort to invade Iraq, of course, among the Democrats, uh, and in fact, he was a proponent of that colonial move to split it up into three countries at the time, you know, and then you can look at him kind of egging on George W. Bush and saying that he wanted to give him a Nobel Peace Prize if he got Saddam out quickly. But the enormous mounting pressure from the public, I think, has made it just so unpopular, you know, and and really, really kind of put a spotlight on the Iraq war vote that he now pledges as part of his campaign to, quote, end the forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Harris's campaign website says she'll end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and protracted military engagements in places like Syria but she'll do so responsibly by consulting our generals and ambassadors, not via tweet. So she's also said stuff like, you know, we should bring the, the troops home, but also we need a presence there in terms of supporting what the leaders of Afghanistan want. So I guess read between the lines here for us with both of these people. I mean, what what is she really saying here with, you know, the criticism of Trump? tweeting, of course, um, with no basis to it, you know, end the forever wars and he's removing troops, which we know that he really didn't do. But what is she really saying here when she criticizes Trump for doing that, saying we need to maintain a presence? And what do you think about Biden? I mean, can we trust that Biden really wants to end these wars, considering how he also said he wants to maintain thousands of U.S. forces in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's kind of a cliche to say that talk is cheap in, in politics, particularly in foreign policy, but that is true. And, uh, you know, what, what Harris is saying with those tweets is is uh, a refrain we've heard before, which is, oh, I will I will withdraw from these places, but responsibly, meaning I'm not, I'm going to do it very slowly. I'm going to do it piecemeal. 
Uh, I'm going to probably leave uh, forces behind, and, and both of them have said that they would basically do as much, uh, which technically is not a withdrawal if you're leaving uh, troops behind, even if you designate them as special forces. They are still troops, they're still armed soldiers that you are deploying. Um, and it, it's it's also a refrain that Obama used constantly to, to justify why, you know, another politician who, who warns saying, I'm going to end these wars, and then didn't uh and and continually sort of said well you know we we have to be responsible about this and in afghanistan i mean we've seen what that has led uh to because this is now what uh we're in the 19th year uh of the war in afghanistan uh the the afghanistan papers that were released late last year showed that basically the 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 u.s is in that country for no real reason that 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 anyone can pinpoint uh, the the people on the ground and the policymakers themselves don't have a coherent strategy for what they're doing there. They they all think it's kind of a disaster, but there isn't a political appetite uh, for anyone to withdraw. And and obviously, you know, the the military has their own ideas about what's best. Um, and I think it's really hard to uh, to defy not just the the wishes of of military leaders and the thinking of military leaders, but also the, this entire infrastructure that that exists in in, in Washington to support uh, whether more war or or to oppose withdrawal. That it takes someone who's really committed to a foreign policy vision to defy that. I'm not sure if Biden or Harris really are, are either of those people. I mean, Biden. I I will say I will give him credit. He he based on reporting from inside the White House and what White House insiders have said under Obama uh, under Obama's administration he was a a more war averse uh, part of that administration he was more skeptical of intervention which is good um, but uh, does that mean that he would necessarily actually take you know take the US out of these countries and in these wars I don't really know again it's it would take a real uh, force of will to do that, and for Biden, who's going to you know come under ferocious attack from the right when he becomes president or if he becomes president, um, there there may it may just be easier for him to just continue doing what he's always done, uh, and to sort of just you know say yes we're going to withdraw we're going to withdraw but we'll do it responsibly and then just sort of slow walk these efforts until basically nothing's done and his term is up. Right. I mean, it, it is interesting that that it just kind of passed on to the next administration. But I mean, like you said, Biden, apparently, as he claims, he was opposed to the giant troop surge under Obama. That is a good sign if that is indeed true, that he was kind of the dissenting voice to to urge to not send that many troops there, which, of course, was a huge disaster. But I wanted to get your quick take on this notion that Trump you know, somehow ending the Afghanistan war. Because to me, it seems like the U.S. has been there this long because they want to set up some sort of mining operation or make it worth it, right? Um, but the entire notion that the U.S. needs to be negotiating some sort of peace deal with the Taliban is weird because why does the U.S. need to play a role whatsoever in the peace between the Taliban and the Afghan people? That aside, like my brother mentioned before, Trump has kind of given this credit over and over again for simply just... The rhetoric, you know, whether it's against the military industrial complex or just tweeting and the endless wars or talking about removing the troops from Afghanistan. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think it's a stretch to say Trump is, is anti-war or even more anti-war than, than you know, uh, a given politician. I think he has some 
uh, anti-interventionist instincts, or at least he has some sort of uh, populist instincts to kind of, you know, uh, reduce U.S. involvement, whether to save money or to stop uh, American lives from being lost. And that it plays to his base. I mean, that is part of how he was able to kind of beat Clinton by sort of disingenuously framing, framing himself as someone who was more opposed to, to, to war than she was. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always tough with Trump to know how serious and how committed and how genuine uh, any of this stuff is. I mean, he, he's often uh, often goes back on things he says. Uh, he often seems to lose his, his appetite uh, for, for doing this kind of thing. You know, I... I his uh, willingness to negotiate and, and talk to uh, Kim Jong-un was, was good. Um, but then, you know, once this this opposition from both inside his administration and outside came, he sort of seemed to lose interest and kind of, you know, give up on that. So, yeah, I, I really honestly don't know how genuine his um, his intent was. But I think what is significant about this, uh, this peace deal that he's working on was while he was doing it, you know, you had this uh, this leak about the um, the Russian bounties that you know the the uh, Kremlin was paying the Taliban bounties mm-hmm. to kill U.S. soldiers, which is dubious for a number of reasons. One of which being why the hell would would they need money to kill the U.S. that they see as an invading force <laughs> anyway? Um, and then you know, since then, a, a wide variety of of people, not not you know not outside critics, but people within the military, have kind of uh, cast doubt on the story, and and uh, including the 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 general who's sort of in charge of the Afghanistan mission. He said, "Well, you know, I, I haven't really seen evidence for it." But that story mm-hmm. was used by a bunch of uh, pro-war Democrats and and people like Lynn Cheney to then um, basically put added roadblocks to U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan. And so I think you know, regardless of what how genuine and committed Trump is to actually getting the U.S. out of Afghanistan, I think that's a really instructive example because it shows you the kind of opposition that, that Biden, even if in his heart of hearts, he really does mean to, to get the U.S. out of Afghanistan, uh, residual force notwithstanding, this is the kind of opposition he's going to be facing. He's going to be facing leaks from within the military that, that might be completely made up or, or who knows what. He's going to be facing internal opposition from the Democrats mm-hmm. themselves. And again, if he is not really committed to this uh and if if there isn't a a you know a force from without that is actually pushing him to 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 do this stuff uh it'll be a lot easier for him to just give up and say well you know i tried but uh you know uh, too many obstacles let's move on so i think i think people should should take at least that away from this this uh, episode of trump yeah definitely and i wanted to touch on something that you you mentioned about how biden sometimes found himself even surprisingly, I didn't know this to the left of Obama in terms of the Afghanistan surge that he was actually opposed to it. That's the first time I'm hearing this. But in terms of like the administration teams and these factionalizations that started to be more apparent in Obama's second term, and I'm sure that you've read, you know, some of the same things that I've read about how Obama and Ben Rhodes became increasingly insulated among themselves and sort of shielding themselves from other people like Samantha Powers trying to make policy recommendations. I've always been a little bit confused, actually. Where does Biden, in terms of these sort of Obama factional teams, fit in? Was he more of a Obama-Ben Rhodes guy, or was he more sort of on the Samantha Powers sort of Hillary tip of the sort of um, Obama administration dynamic when it came to the way of looking at foreign policy? 
Uh, honestly, I mean, based on, on what I've read, you know, accounts from insiders and, and others, it, it sounds like he was sort of an island on his own. Uh, we didn't quite fit into, into anything. And, you know, part of it <laughs> is, part of, part of that was, was you know, Biden's style. Uh, people within the administration have complained about how, you know, Biden's famous for being very long-winded and just kind of uh, droning on and on and on and on uh, whenever he gets a chance to speak. Uh, and they sort of try and ignore him. So, you know, th there's a little bit of a, a feeling of kind of disdain for him by the Obama people. Um, but at the same time, he's also been criticized by people like, like Robert Gates, who basically said that, that Biden was wrong in every foreign policy decision that had ever been taken in U.S. history. And, you know, in, in that case, I mean, Biden reportedly uh, was against the, the war in Libya. Um, you know, that, that's something that's come up quite a few times. Uh, people have said that he was not really a one of these people that was pro-intervention in Syria. Um, so I think there is evidence there that, that Biden is, uh, you know, he has instincts that are more anti-intervention than some of the Obama people. But the problem is, it's not just going to be Biden that runs his administration, particularly the, the Biden that we're seeing now, who, who you know, we yeah. can all agree, I think, seems tired and depleted and is just frankly not the man he was even <laughs> in 2015. Um, and so it's going to depend in large part on, on yeah, who he's yeah, surrounding yeah. himself with. And who is he surrounding himself with? Uh, you know, reportedly Michelle Flournoy, uh, who was, um, she was an Obama person. She was a Hillary person. She was someone who founded the, uh, the CNAS yep. think tank, very hawkish. Um, uh, Tony Blinken also, you know, very much in that, in that clique. So if these people are the ones who are running foreign policy, and it, and it does sound like based on reports that it is, very much a return of the Obama people into power, then, you know, yes, Biden will have final sign off, but how much that actually means, uh, honestly remains to be seen. Yeah. I was reading somewhere that Biden has hundreds of foreign policy advisors right now. So remains to be seen who he's actually going to appoint, um, to surround himself with. And that really will decide everything. Yeah, exactly. The, the CNAS you just brought up is, is particularly disturbing to me because I've been tracking people like Victoria Newland, the think tanks that sort of circulate around those people, Michelle Flournoy, as you mentioned. And it's it doesn't seem like it'll just be the return of these Obama people necessarily. It also seems like it'll be the return of the specific group of neoliberal hawk think tankers, like these transatlantic relations people, these Brookings people, the sort of the strobe Talbots. But this sort of leads to the concept of, will Biden's administration be ushering in, you know, maybe not Biden himself, but the people that he's bringing in, will he be ushering in sort of this return to this Obama era paradigm of these hawks from that era wanting to be more aggressive towards Syria and Russia? Right. I mean, we recently heard that Trump wanted to assassinate Assad and was apparently stopped from doing so by Pompeo. I mean, that that's pretty scary stuff right there. But where does Biden and Kamala stand on Syria? I think Biden has in the past, as I mentioned, he, he has been against uh, going into Syria. I think Harris as well has uh, has said that she would not you know, want to go into, into Syria. The, the problem is that I think both have kind of made noise uh, that suggests that, that they'd be open to sending kind of special forces um, into, into parts of the world with their terrorism. So even if, uh, the thing is, even if they say and they really mean uh, that they don't want to get involved in something like Syria, um, there is the 
potential that, that, that things just kind of draw them in. Events kind of spiral, whether out of control or just sort of escalate uh, to a point where they feel like they have to send in troops. And then, of course, once you've sent in troops and, and you know, those troops are killed, that then creates a, a, a further rationale to send uh, more mm -hmm. troops and a deepened involvement. We've seen this so many times in history. Um, so, I mean, there, there's not much that that I think we can be really uh, certain about that, that, you know, that Biden and, and Harris, the Biden-Harris administration, wouldn't lead to uh, further in, involvement in Syria. But um, I, neither of them have said that they would actually, you know, uh, really get properly involved there. Um, they've mostly just attacked Trump for kind of, you know, when, when he talked about removing troops and that kind of thing. But that's also that's also very much campaign rhetoric. So, Right. Well, I guess that's the problem is that when you're attacking Trump for just simply toying with the idea of removing troops, it, it lends uh, to the notion that you are more right wing, right? You want to keep troops there forever. I mean, we know troops are there guarding oil fields. I think I have heard Biden talk about how we need to increase pressure on Assad and criticize Trump for not doing that. But I don't know. I mean, I saw an article from Josh Rogan, who's pretty much a propagandist himself, talking about how, you know, Biden is going to increase U.S. engagement in Syria. I don't know how true that is. But what about the Biden administration? I mean, the people who he can probably who he's going to surround himself with, like my brother was talking about this, this foreign policy establishment, that's the more neoliberal think tankers. Uh, what do you think that their position would be on Assad versus what Trump has done? Oh, yeah, they, they definitely want him out. And they support, you know, having troops. There. I mean, Tony Blinken, for example, uh, he said, I, I'm not sure if it was this year or, or earlier, but he said, you know, you got to keep the, the troops in Syria where they are, because it, it'll sort of it's it's a bargaining chip. It's leverage uh, over Assad, um, and and Michelle Flournoy uh, in twenty sixteen, she and CNAS they put out this report, uh, sort of outlining essentially what the foreign policy of the next Democratic administration would be, and um, you know presumably under Clinton at the time, people thought she was going to win, and that involved you know deepening involvement in, in Syria and actually deepening involvement anywhere where there's terrorism. I mean, which, which basically was the Obama foreign policy, you know, it was, well, we won't start wars. What we'll do is, instead is we'll send drones uh, to, to everywhere around the world to, to bomb people. We'll send special forces teams in to, to kill people under cover of night. That doesn't count as a war, uh, but we'll still be taking on the big bad terrorists. And uh, I think that's, that's essentially what the, the kind of ideology of these liberal interventions that are kind of floating around Biden right now uh, is. It reminds me, as you say that, um, in the cover of the night, Mike Morell, I know that he said on Charlie Rose that long time ago that we should be killing Iranians and Russians, like in a, in a covert manner. And apparently the U.S. did kill numerous Russians that were fighting in Syria. So it's just interesting, the whole bounty situation of kind of deflecting these heinous crimes on other state actors when really, I mean, the U.S. is doing some pretty crazy shit over there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, the Russia factor is a bit of a wild card here because that is something that could draw the U.S. Uh, further into Syria. Um, you know, not, not even the kind of impulse to get rid of Assad, but the impulse to confront Russia. Um, obviously, since 2016, there's been this... Yes. Yeah, you know, there's been this real strong push to, to confront Russia, to sort of reorient 
uh, foreign policy back to the Cold War and took, you know, that views Russia as this kind of all-encompassing evil that is really the, the driver of everything bad that's happening in the world. And, and you know, Trump has been bad because he's been, uh, uh, you know, uh, supposedly uh, insufficiently hawkish towards Russia, which of course is, is not true at all, but uh, that's the line. Um, and so there could be a lot of pressure. I mean, that that is a, that's a thing that really has wide amount of dis- uh, wide mm. amount of agreement uh, in Washington. The the idea of confronting Russia, you know, both the the right wing neocons and these kind of democratic centrists and this this new class of kind of CIA Democrats that that came out in the uh, in, in the twenty eighteen election. Um, you know, that, there could be a wide consensus for that. And yeah. the way that things are, are shaping up now, where where Russia's kind of, you know getting more involved in Syria, there's, there's skirmishes happening between Americans and, and Russian soldiers. Um, it, it, it's very easy to see that that escalating and, and leading to more involvement. And, you know, that was one of the things I remember in 2016 that people were worried about Clinton with because she wanted to set up a no-fly zone and people said, well, hold on, if you do that, you know, the potential for World War Three is uh, is not insignificant. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of these things that people are going to have to look at as well. The role of Russia... And, and how Russian involvement around the world could be used to fuel uh, more war and more intervention. Yeah, I mean, that's all that's all something I, th- I feel like a lot of people are not discussing right now when they should be, because not that Biden will just be a, a continuation of whatever Hillary was pushing back then, that not, not necessarily that clear cut, but the people that he would be bringing in. I mean, this CNAS think tank and also places like Brookings, all those same people were sort of theorized as being part of a Hillary administration. Michelle Flournoy, even Victoria Newland was. She brought some of those people in. I mean, she brought in Strobe Talbot. She brought in Robert Kagan on her foreign policy advisory board when she was in the State Department. So I guess other than drawing us into a deeper confrontation with Russia via Syria, do you see any other hot button sort of regional conflicts like for example, Ukraine, could you see the possibility of Biden's administration actually amping that up somehow in the same way that part of, parts of the Obama administration were four years ago? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Flournoy back in 2016, in, in a big report that she uh, or that CNAS uh, produced that, that she helped write, that was sort of a blueprint for what Clinton might do as president. One of the things was that they wanted to uh, send arms to Ukraine, uh, which at the time was contrary to Obama's foreign policy, which you know has been forgotten now, but would be kind of ridiculed as as pro-Putin uh, by the Democrats because he was a lot uh, a lot more averse to confrontation with Russia. Exactly. Yeah, and and so um, I think that is one theater uh, that that there could be more involvement in. Um, I mean, obviously Trump has has kind of deepen the U.S. involvement there anyway. Um, but I could see people of that ilk kind of pushing uh, the U.S. to get more involved in Ukraine. And, and you know, there may be a way for for Biden, who obviously, you know, Ukraine is, is quite a, a big issue for him personally because of the, uh, the Burisma issue and, and his son's involvement there. And, and he's faced a lot of political pressure that he's kind of been shielded from yeah. so far. But, you know, that, that could be used as some kind of point of, of leverage, perhaps, to, to pressure Biden. You know, if people start – because I'm sure when Biden becomes president, you know, uh, he is going to face, I think, the same – I should say if, if he becomes president, he is going to face 
the same kind of <laughs> intense pushback that the Democrats have, have kind of launched against Trump. You know, the, the Republicans are always one much exactly better. yeah they're much better at political warfare uh than the democrats and secondly whenever they get hit by the democrats they always respond twice as hard and i could you know this ukraine thing people are sort of they think they've, they've done biden uh, uh, a sort of favor through 2019 and early 2020 by pretending that it's not a, a genuine scandal and an issue um and the fact is it's not that there is no there there that you know there was a genuine his, his son should not have been on that board. And, and the Senate report that just came out outlines how people within the Obama administration, senior State Department officials and others, uh, were, were raising the alarm uh, with Biden and others saying, hey, this is really bad. This does not look good if your son is on this board, but we're pushing anti-corruption uh, messaging and initiatives in the country. Um, and so, and, and Biden, you know, really reacts very badly to any question about his son's involvement here. And you know, that, that may not be an issue in this election, but after the election, if Biden's in office, you can bet that they're going to use this to put pressure on Biden. And perhaps, you know, I could see if uh, I could foresee a, a scenario where that pressure on Biden, you know, a way to alleviate it is, well, if I just posture as kind of tougher uh, uh, on Russia and, and get deeper involved in Ukraine, I can show that, you know, I can sort of overcome some of these clouds that are uh, hanging around my, my son's conduct. I mean, you know, that's not a guarantee. This is complete speculation, but it's not out of the question. No, I think that you're right. And we saw how he reacted. I mean, remember that one campaign event where some guy in the audience was just like, this is super corrupt. The fact that your son took this position and he was like, listen, fats. He was like, I'm not sedentary. Look fat. He was like, I'm not sedentary. I basically saying that he was just overweight and like, and wanted to challenge him to a pushup contest. I mean, it was nuts. That's not fair. He said, listen, facts, as we all know, as as Simone Sanders uh, told us afterwards, uh, very clear when you listen back to the uh, tape, it's very obvious. (laughs) We should probably drop in a clip here, in fact, of of Joe Biden being asked about this in a new HBO documentary, and he completely loses his shit. And the guy asks him in a pretty softball way. To serve on the board of a Ukrainian energy company facing serious corruption charges, you were the vice president running point on Ukraine. The average Joe hears that and says, that sounds fishy. What's your understanding of what your son was doing for an extraordinary amount of money? I don't know what he was doing. I know he was on the board. I found out he was on the board after he was on the board. And that was it. And there's nobody... Well, you've had a lot of time. Isn't this something you want to get to the bottom of? No, because I trust my son. But that doesn't pass the smell test. Like, when you're vice president, isn't there a higher standard? Don't you need to know what's happening with your family? Don't you need to put down some guardrails? Unless there was something that was... uh, There was something on its face that was wrong. There's nothing on its face that was wrong. So, Look, if you want to talk about problems, you know, let's talk about Trump's family. I mean, come on. This is... So, <laughs> These so, guys are amazing. So you think that everything that happened was kosher? You know there's not one single bit of evidence, not one little tiny bit, to suggest anything done was wrong. You know that. But you keep asking me these questions. It's okay. He, you, know, you're, you're, you know, you're doing what you have to do. But I'm not worried about it. Look, the American public knows me. Last one on this. Charges uh, policy in Ukraine and your son's job in Ukraine. How is that not a conflict of interest? 
It's not a conflict of interest. There's been no indication of any conflict of interest from Ukraine or anywhere else. Period. I'm not going to. I'm not going to respond to that. Let's focus on the problem. Focus on this man, what he's doing that no president has ever done. No president. Yeah, it's just so fascinating that he just can't address this. You know, I mean, it, it seems like this is a pretty straightforward thing that he would be coached repeatedly by his handlers and just saying, you know, this is an issue that's going to come up. You need to know how to address this. Yeah, well, B- Biden's kind of uh, strategy in this election uh, it has been to whenever he gets any <laughs> tough question from someone in the, in the public is just to kind of react in the most over the top, angry and kind of borderline threatening way. Uh, which this is why the coronavirus has been such a gift to him because he doesn't have to interact with anyone. He, he barely has to, to step outside and, and be seen. <laughs> this, this is what ruined his campaign in 1987. He, uh, he at one point got, got asked about some of his um, university credentials and he, he, you know, totally innocent question, but he took it as a personal affront and he just went off at this guy and started making all this stuff up about how he had won awards and he was top of his class. And eventually that was that was uh, revealed uh, or exposed as being completely untrue. And then he had to step down. So, you know, he's he's been given a great gift by not having to sort of interact with people and get these questions and, and react in a very angry way. Oh, my God, this pathological lying is just such a ridiculous trait that he has. But I'm reminded when the primary was going strong, like all these people who'd come up to him and just say, you know, what about the mass deportations or are you going to ban fracking? And he's just like, don't vote for me. Do not vote for me if you like, have issues with this thing. It's just like, wow, what a horrible strategy, man. A classic man. tried and true electoral strategy is to <laughs> tell people to vote for someone else. <laughs> so let's move on to Saudi Arabia and Yemen. I think that this is one of the best things he has going for him is that, you know, he's talked about wanting to end the U.S. involvement in Yemen. We know that Trump vetoed the measure to force the end to the U.S. involvement both Biden and Harris have talked about wanting to support that resolution. But I mean, what does that look like? Because we know that the U.S. is supplying not only weaponry, but tactical support for these strikes against the Houthi rebels. Uh, how will this actually work if the U.S. is still maintaining such a close partnership with the Saudi kingdom? Well, uh, one way it could work, and, and it could be completely you know, apart from Biden himself, is we already saw under Trump a uh, resolution succeeded. Uh, that was that was led by Bernie Sanders to end the war in Yemen. Trump vetoed it, um, but that resolution got uh, cross party support. Uh, there were some conservative Republicans who also voted for it because uh, you know there, there are mm-hmm. some Republicans who, are, who have genuine anti war kind of kind of uh, sentiments. Um, and so even if Biden is kind of saying this, but it's a kind of an empty gesture, he's, he's just saying it. He he's not actually sure if he's going to follow it up on. Um, there could be a, a chance for a, a similar coalition uh, to come up and, and retry to get the U.S. out of Yemen by, by passing this resolution again. Um, and, and it could be even easier, uh, perhaps, if the Democrats really do end up taking a few seats uh, uh, more in the Senate this time. You know, that remains to be seen. But I think that that experience under Trump, I think, uh, makes it, uh, at least a little more possible, a little more likely that that um, Congress could pass something in Biden, who you know doesn't want to look like now he's he's completely going back on what he said, um, is sort of forced to to sign it, or at least if not forced, mm-hmm. kind of just goes along with the uh, the tide and goes, yeah, okay, this isn't going to be a big cost to me. But yeah, you're right. The the other thing is though, at the same time, 
the US and, and the Saudis collaborate on a whole heap of other issues against terrorism and, and uh, Biden Harris, uh, or at least certainly Harris has said that they would want to keep that collaboration going. Um, so, you know, I would expect that if there is some sort of break from existing policy towards Saudi Arabia, it would probably be relatively uh, limited. So on the subject of sanctions, Trump has implemented these draconian sanctions on almost every country that does not bow down to U.S. capitalism and militarism, including over 800 just on Iran. Do you know Harris or Biden's stance or people that might be in their administration on lifting these sanctions across the world? Or is there any talk whatsoever on doing anything like that? What I've seen from them is kind of a little bit muddled and contradictory. So obviously there's there's broad support in that part of the foreign policy establishment to, to get back into the Iran deal. Uh, of course, that was one of Obama's great legacies and also was just common sense policy. Um, the, the problem is during the campaign, for example, Biden has refused to say that he would lift sanctions in Iran. You know, he kind of wants to use them as a bargaining chip or at least says that he, he would like to see them kind of come to the table and, and offer something first before he did that. He he wrote an op-ed uh, not that long ago that kind of said the similar thing, you know, basically, we're going to keep sanctions on, um, uh, or at least, you know, targeted sanctions, he says, but, you know, we would, we would re-enter the Iran deal if Iran went back into full compliance with the deal. Uh, so there's several problems with this, because... One, what incentive does Iran have to get back into the deal? They've already been burned so many times, particularly this time. And, and of course, it was at the, at the U.S.'s mm. behest. I mean, it was the United States that, that broke the, the, the agreement. Um, and that's why they ended up falling out of compliance with it. So it, it makes little sense for them to be the ones who have to first kind of put their cards on the table and offer something. If anything, the U.S. should. Um, you know, Biden has said in that, in that op-ed, you know, we would uh, make sure that that sanctions aren't doing anything to, to uh, escalate the, the problem with COVID-19 in Iran. Uh, again, I'm not really sure. It's a very, that's a very vague one sentence kind of statement. And it's hard to say what that would actually mean or what that would look like in person. Um, but even beyond all this, uh, because of you know, the way that Trump derailed the Iran deal, um, you now have this situation where the uh, hardliners in Iran have been strengthened, um, and there's no evidence that Iran itself is even has any appetite to, to get back into the Iran deal. Um, and I think if the if the U.S. if the Biden administration comes in with this kind of approach of, well, hey, you guys you guys show your hand first, you guys give us something, and then maybe we'll think about you know, finally going back into, into the Iran deal, that's not really going to work because Iran does not want to do that. Um, so, I don't, you know, the, the other thing to know here is that, that it's hard to say what is campaign rhetoric and what really the Biden foreign, foreign policy team would do. Uh, it, at the moment, you know, Biden has incentive to kind of posture as tough and to, to try and, and, and cover his, his, I guess, right flank against Trump and, and to prevent him from saying... That, that Biden's actually, you know, he's weak on foreign policy, that he's friendly to Iran, that kind of thing. Maybe that's not really what he means, and maybe this is just something he's during, doing uh, during the campaign. Uh, one example is uh, in uh, when New York Times had that big, you know, kind of pompous uh, interview series where they, they interviewed all the candidates and filmed it and then decided who they would endorse. 
during that, Biden, uh, he was asked about, you know, Trump's kind of policy towards Erdogan and how he was very kind of uh, friendly towards him. And, and Biden kind of suggested that uh, if he was president, he would he would support opposition groups in Turkey to kind of overthrow Erdogan, which is kind of an insane thing to say out loud. But I think from his point of view was he was trying to show, oh, you know, I'm the tough guy. Trump's not tough enough. Uh, I am. And maybe he's doing a similar thing with the Saran thing. But, it, you know, it, it's one of these things. It, it's hard to know until they really get in mm-hmm. uh, what exactly they're going to do. Just in terms of their overall stance on Iran, I mean, it sounds like they're sort of both vaguely, you know, talking about wanting to join back into the Iran nuclear deal with with more contingencies. I don't know if you remember Biden's statement on the assassination of General Soleimani, but I mean, it was particularly bad. It basically helped justify the war crime itself while very mildly criticizing it solely on the basis that it lacks strategy and vision on what to do after the assassination. I don't even think he criticized the assassination itself. So that being said, what would a Biden administration look like in terms of just the Iranian policy overall? I think they're probably going to do, they're going to do some diplomatic outreach. Uh, you know, maybe do something like Obama did where kind of, they, they kind of posture as, as, as hard in Iran in public, but, do kind of back channels that that uh, kind of try to say, hey, we're willing to negotiate. Th- that might be an approach. Um, I, th- I think what you said kind of brings us to a more fundamental question, which is, you know, the problem with with the, the U.S. drone policy um, that, that ramped up under Obama that, you know, Trump has obviously escalated and Biden and really no, no presidential candidate really showed any inkling to, to roll back. And the reason that Trump was able to kill Soleimani is because that, reckless program exists in the first place and you know if if biden really does keep it in place uh we're going to be coming to possibly another republican administration with someone even more extreme than trump coming in who will have this program at their disposal to wreak whatever kind of havoc uh they have in their mind including you know who knows uh further assassinations of really high level officials whether in iran or 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 otherwise um, and, you know, that, that's one of these things that's kind of completely just uh, left the conversation, I think, in foreign policy. You know, the, the, uh, unfortunately, even Bernie Sanders didn't, didn't really say that much about drones. But now it's just sort of it's, it's very much a seems like a very ingrained part of the U.S. foreign policy apparatus. And, and uh, I don't think anyone's really thought about what a potential disaster that could be if it, if it led the U.S. into war once. I mean, it could it could do do so many more times. Right. I mean, just those statistics about how drones kill innocent people like over 90 percent of the time. I mean, it's just it's really shocking when you look at this premise for extrajudicial murder and assassinations around the world. And the fact that the U.S. just gives itself the right to do that under this war on terror, you know, AOMF authority. It's pretty shocking. I mean, the, the assassination of General Soleimani was really scary moment. We really, I at least I thought that we were on the precipice of war. It was just horrifying, Rico. And it's also really scary what Trump has done with Palestine and Israel. Because Trump's been called the greatest friend to Israel by the extreme right wing in the country. You can look at the moving of the embassy, even though pretty much a lot of administrations before that had on a cursory level, you know, said that they would support that. No one had ever gone through with that measure. 
And it sparked off the whole Great March of Return. His record has been completely reprehensible. He cut all the aid to the Gaza refugees. It's been devastating. But Biden and Harris's record on Israel is pretty awful. Um, I remember going through all of the candidates during the primary and kind of documenting what their stance was on Palestine. And I think Harris and Biden, aside from Klobuchar, were by far the worst of all the primary candidates. You know, given 100% ratings by APAC, Kamala's a regular speaker at APAC. Her campaign director even said her support of Israel is central to who she is. She compared uh, the civil rights struggle to pro-Israel activism. You know, really crazy batshit stuff here. Um, And I think Biden even, if I'm not mistaken, went around and defended that flotilla massacre saying, you know, basically lobbying other politicians to say that it was the right thing to do. So it's pretty far out, man. But other than re-implementing the aid possibly to Gaza refugees, which would, of course, be a huge thing. So there is a difference there. Have they talked about their stance on the embassy move? And where else do you think that the Palestine situation could go? From memory, Biden has said that he would keep the uh, embassy where it is. Uh, and, and that's not surprising. I mean, Biden was one of the uh, lawmakers back in 1995 and 96 who, who backed and voted the, uh, the law that actually allowed that to happen. So he supported that back uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um, uh, you know, where... Israeli policy is going to go, as you say, I think Biden will kind of return things to that uh, pre-Trump Democrat consensus where, yeah, you know, you sort of pay lip service to the two-state solution, you provide support to the Palestinians, uh, you sort of make, you know, these these attempts to bring people to the table, but fundamentally you don't deal with the the real issue at hand, which is that Israel uh, has free reign to do whatever it wants. Um, because there's no no real leverage uh, uh, that that's imposed on it at all, um, and Biden has said that he does not want to condition U.S. aid uh, to Israel. So as Harris, um, uh, Biden, I should also say, has throughout his career been one of the most uh, pro-Israel uh, politicians, certainly Democrats um, in in Congress. I mean, he. Uh, his 1987 run really came in the back of, of his connections to the uh, the pro-Israel lobby. Uh, and, you know, he said things like uh, there was an APAC membership drive they took part in once, and he said something along the lines of, you know, uh, uh, Americans can never criticize uh, Israel in public because it's, it emboldens the Arabs if, uh, if, if, this, is, uh, if, if this is heard, you know, um, by the general public. Um, so... You know, in my mind, although there is a rising tide of activism that, that is increasingly critical of Israel and, and it wants to reorient foreign policy um, uh, towards Israel, I don't think it's really reached uh, the level it has to to really push foreign policy in a different direction at this point. But at the same time, you know, with Israel uh, becoming increasingly kind of an international pariah and, and, and really being more and more bold, um, it could be that, that the Israeli government itself pushes things to, to such an extreme uh, that, that it ends up shifting uh, the, the kind of political consensus in the United States, or at least kind of cracks it enough that something is done. I mean, even Biden is sort of uh, voiced criticism of Israel of Netanyahu recently, saying you know his annexation is is, is actually bad for um, uh, U.S. support towards Israel. So I, you know, unfortunately, that's not a very 
happy answer. I mean, it's it's incredibly depressing the idea that things have to get to, to such a such a point to to maybe push someone. <laughs> But I, unfortunately, I think that that is probably the most likely. I do think public opinion is shifting because of the extreme measures the Israeli government has made, especially in light of the Great March of Return. I mean, just these wanton uh, assassinations, essentially, of peaceful protesters, just pretty, pretty shocking and gruesome footage that we all can see with our own eyes and understand how to cut through the media manipulation about the situation. But I mean, what's your opinion on Obama, that current through the Obama administration that was bucking Netanyahu to a certain extent? I mean, of course, that infamous speech that Netanyahu came and gave to Congress where Kamala Harris actually attended (laughs) and I think passed a resolution to support um, Netanyahu, if I'm not mistaken. But do you think that that was Obama himself or how did that fit into the Biden, um, you know, his relationship, you think? I, I think it probably came from a, a number of different sources. I mean, I think within that kind of liberal interventionist side of foreign policy, I think there is some, you know, a, a real genuine feeling that that people want to uh, get justice for, for Palestinians and want to end this uh, this conflict that's just been going on for, for decades and decades. But the problem is that, I you know, I think it's a it's a kind of like feeling, you know, I think people <laughs> feel bad, but as far as priorities go, uh, it, it's not high enough uh, uh, up the list for them to, to really pursue it and to really commit to it and to really commit to what they would have to do, which again is to challenge Israel. And, you know, I mean, Obama um, from time to time would kind of chide Netanyahu verbally, uh, but he never actually did anything uh, aside from, from towards the end of, of his administration. But for the most part, you know, he would just say, Hey, stop building settlements, and Netanyahu would say, you know, oh, okay, well, we'll see, and then he would just keep building them. Um, so until that appetite to to really confront Israel and to to actually leverage the power that the United States has uh, over Israel um, and to make it change its behavior, uh, I don't really see things changing. But again, if Israel continues to act as outrageously as it, as it has been it's not out of the question that that could finally snap something, um, you know, in that kind of liberal foreign policy establishment and, and demand uh, some sort of uh, actual response beyond just words. One of the only um, Biden ads that's playing on TV right now that I've seen uh, is calling Trump a China puppet. And, you know, they're calling, the Trump's campaign is calling him Beijing, Biden, they're trying to tie, and I don't even really know the details of this, so maybe it's totally true, but they're you know, trying to tie Hunter Biden to getting all these supposedly Chinese government or company bribes. Harris said to the CFR uh, that Trump has turned a blind eye when it comes to human rights abuses in China there to win a trade war, so that he's somehow prioritizing winning a trade war over you know this sort of liberal interventionist attitude of wanting to do something about the human rights abuses there. And so what do you think this all means about the future U.S. policy there in general? I mean, speak a little bit on the fact that it seems like Trump is trying to ratchet up some kind of war scenario with China, whether that just means an increasing Cold War type situation or something worse, but also like what it would look like potentially under a Biden administration uh, in terms of that move towards China right now. Well, Biden has 
tended to be uh, viewed as quite friendly to China throughout his career. Um, and I think, you know, the, this posturing that they're doing now is obviously just a, a U-turn for the campaign um, to, to try and make themselves seem like the, the, the bigger China hawks. And, you know, of course, attacking Trump is insufficiently uh, tough on China. Um, and, and it would be tempting and, and nice to think that this is going to only be around for the campaign. But, of course, Biden will continue to face these right-wing attacks uh, from Republicans and, and others. He'll continue to face the kind of pressure. And, of course, there is a lot of pressure, not just from people involved in politics, but, but also, you know, big uh, arms manufacturers and, and all the various industries that, that um, profit from escalating tensions with China. So he's going to continue facing this, and it could very well be, you know, I mean, 2022, uh, you've got um, midterms again. Um, it, it's always tempting for Democrats to just say, well, you know, there's an election coming, so we have to do this. We don't want to, but we have to. Um, and it could be that, that especially the way the public opinion is now, um, that, you know, because there isn't a, any sort of alternative narrative being, being put out in public, um, about uh, how the U.S. should approach China and, and what actually what the U.S.'s uh, foreign policy should be beyond just sort of regurgitating the, these, these old approaches from the Cold War, um, people have kind of turned more, more negatively towards China. Even though I haven't looked at all the polling, but I'm not sure if actually a majority of people see China as an adversary. They see it as a competitor, certainly, and they see it increasingly unfavorably, but they don't necessarily see it as an enemy. Um, but, you know, all that pressure will exist uh, if Biden wins and, and uh, it could push him and his administration into a certain direction, uh, a bad one. Um, however, at the same time, we have to note that not just Ch uh, Biden's kind of approach to China has been traditionally more friendly, um, but also a bunch of his foreign policy advisors have kind of said similar things. Um, people like Jake Sullivan, I think he has said something along the lines of, you know, we have to... Um, to, to, to collaborate with China. We have to work together where we can. They're going to be a competitor. They're, they're, you know, it's going to be a tough relationship, but there are issues where we need to work on uh, together, like climate change, of course, the most pressing uh, issue facing uh, the entire globe right now. And, and I think that's the right approach. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think looking for ways to, to what you can work on with China, whether it's climate change or whether it's nuclear uh, proliferation, what have you, uh, that is the way to go. Um, and, and other people have made similar kind of um, uh, uh, statements as well in this foreign policy team. Um, but again, is, is that going to be enough to sort of overcome some of this right wing pressure that's going to ramp up? Because the right is just sort of, you know, praying for, for, for uh, confrontation with China. They, they want this very badly. Um, and, and again, that's going to be one of these things that remains to be seen. I, I think it, it does point to the fact that, that we on the left, we really have to try and uh, advance a counter narrative and 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 uh, apply some counter pressure as much as we can, um, so that it's not just the right pressuring Biden. Because if it's just the right that is pressuring that administration, of course it's going to turn right because it has no incentive to do otherwise. Um, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, the left is you know we we don't have a a massive. Uh, cable network where we can sort of uh, disseminate these ideas constantly, but but there may be a way to to sort of push uh, these people into into acting on what is their better instincts on this on this issue. Yeah, I just think it's wild that you know this TV ad and a lot of other campaign stuff I've seen from Biden just tries to push Trump from the right again about China, saying that he's a China puppet and 
You know, and speaking of Cold War mentalities, if you're going in terms of Latin America, comparing Trump to Hugo Chavez, I mean, I've seen that coming from the Democrats. It's just absolutely bizarre. And I see Biden also pandering a lot to the Florida right wing. I mean, just yesterday he tweeted, I stand in solidarity with the defenders of human rights from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Pray for the freedom of all political prisoners. I'm sure you saw two days ago tweeting support for Juan Guaido, Trump's right-wing coup attempt in Venezuela. Um, Kamala has also stated on record that she she supports a, quote, peaceful transition to legitimate new elections. I mean, it's just unfathomable to me that this is the Democrats' line on Trump's reinstatement of pretty much the Monroe Doctrine in the region after the awful botched coup attempts his administration has tried to carry out in Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost as if they're running a campaign expressly designed to just uh, piss off the, the young progressive voters that uh, helped put Obama into office. Um, it's it's almost as if they, they want to lose. Uh, it's it's incredibly frustrating. I mean, and, and of course, that's just one part of it. Of course, the, the what that means for the, the people in these countries is a whole other other story. Um, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, and as I, I try to kind of point out in my book, um, Biden, this is his kind of reflexive uh, uh, response to to being pressured from the right is he just kind of moves in that direction. He tries to say, hey, hey no, actually, I, 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 I'm not that guy. I'm actually way tougher than you think. Um, instead of kind of doing the more uh, Bernie Sanders kind of approach where uh, he might try and change the conversation, reframe the conversation um, to terrain that's more advantageous to him and less advantageous to his opponent. Um, and and yeah, Latin America is is uh, that's going to be a real uh, issue going forward, obviously, because of everything that's going on, whether it's Venezuela or, or you know Bolivia, um, Ecuador. Uh, you know, a lot of volatility there that will necessitate some kind of response from the U.S., or at least it will for people in Washington. Um, but also, you know, Biden's uh, record on, on Latin America is, is not the greatest. Uh, I, I briefly covered this in the book where I talked about his um, support for Plan Colombia back in 99 under Clinton. And that was this, uh, this sort of attempt to reduce immigration from these countries uh, that was falling into the U.S. There was a big panic uh, around immigration um, at the time uh, during the 90s, similar to now. Uh, and Biden's uh, idea that, that he spearheaded, he uh, basically he was going to give them hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid, these governments there, uh, which of course ended up giving money to um, these very abusive security forces who are already kind of part of the problem. They were the ones who were partly why people were, were, were being driven from uh, Central and South America and, and trying to get to the United States. So uh, it actually exacerbated the problem because it, it, it kind of incentivized, in some cases, uh, killing of people. You know, ostensibly they were, they were meant to be killing gorillas and stuff, but, but they were, in, in many cases, killing innocent people. Um, as well as kind of pairing this policy with uh, kind of pushing neoliberal policy infrastructure projects that were environmentally very uh, damaging, um, that only further you know, uh, drove people to, to seek, uh, fortunately, security somewhere else. And, you know, unfortunately, we, I would love to say, well, that was 999, and, and that's it. But Biden pushed a very similar plan under Obama um, uh, uh, called Biden's Billion. He wanted to, to, to he was pushing this, this billion-dollar program to kind of do basically the same thing, give military aid to these countries, uh, as well as kind of 
uh, economic development, uh, which I'm saying in, in scare, scare quotes. And he's published at least one. I, I, I feel like he's maybe even published uh, two or maybe even three op-eds uh, over the course of 2019, 2020, basically pointing to those two programs and saying, that works. That's the way we should go. We should do that again. Uh, and of course, if it ends up anything like those programs, then it'll actually create the long-term and medium-term conditions uh, and actually had actually short-term conditions, sadly, uh, for uh, immigration and, and instability to, to increase from those places, which will, of course, um, it, if, if it's not met in the right way, will kind of feed a, a further uh, far-right backlash uh, and xenophobia. Um, so I think, you know, that the, the Biden, uh, Biden administration, the Biden campaign has said something along the lines of, you know, Latin America is going to be one of our like th top three or maybe top four uh, focuses if we win. So that's something that people need to keep an eye on. And, and there needs to be some pushback against that if, if he uh, ends up becoming president. Yeah, it seems like there's definitely some possibility that a Biden administration will try to overthrow Maduro or do some shenanigans there. What about Biden and Harris's stance on Cuba? Because as we know, you know, that's one of the biggest sort of tokens that the Obama administration throws out that they were really trying to do this detente with Cuba and normalize relations, specifically Ben Rhodes and, and Obama were really pushing for this towards the end of his administration. It seems like Biden is actually trying to pander to right-wing Cubans who are probably already voting for Trump anyways. Um, and his campaign paraphernalia is boasting that he is anti-communist, which, of course, you know, is also trying to distance himself, it's seemingly, from the Bernie camp. So, what is, I mean, what is their actual positions on Cuba? Do they share this sort of let's return back to the, the clock to the Obama era on Cuba? Or is it something actually worse than that? And because uh, I, I really have no clue. I haven't really heard them speak about it much. And also, yeah, what do you think about just this whole anti-communist uh, undercurrent to his campaign stuff? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, uh, I wish I could tell you. I, I don't know. I haven't looked into it. I haven't heard much of what they've said about Cuba, aside from, as you say, that kind of right-wing pandering uh, to try and win Florida. I would hope that that those kinds of statements are just campaign rhetoric. Again, Biden trying to cover his right flank by by saying, oh, actually, I'm more anti-communist than Trump or, or what have you. I, I would hope that that is the case because obviously the people in the Obama administration understood the importance of, of not taking this ridiculous hard line against Cuba and actually trying to sort of open things up and, and establishing, you know, something, something akin to normal relations uh, before Trump kind of rolled everything back. So I'd hope that they would follow the wisdom of the previous Democratic administration and, and do that. Um, but as far as campaign strategy goes, I mean, again, th this is what Biden has uh, spent his entire career doing, and it's worked for him as far as getting elected. Um, as far as actually doing anything more than that and, and pushing a sort of transformative vision that, that reorients politics away from the increasingly right-wing direction it's gone uh, since, since the Reagan years, um, it has not worked out that well. Uh, and, and it's one of these things, again, where Biden ends up fighting on the preferred terrain of his opponent rather than uh, reorienting uh, the conversation uh, around something else. And, and to be honest, it's not even clear to me if, if uh, 
he needs to to do what he's doing. Um, there was a lot of talk uh, when when Sanders said what he said about Cuba. Uh, I remember there were a lot of reports at the time uh, where people saying, well, this is damaging him in Florida, so on and so forth. But the, the reports I read, it seemed to be just kind of Democratic officials who were opposed to Sanders anyway, who were sort of using that to uh, attack him. Um, and then, you know, there was, there was a report I remember from the Miami Herald at the time that talked to some Cuban-Americans and have found that, that people weren't necessarily actually, you know, unless they're really hardcore right-wing people, in which case they're going <laughs> to they're gonna vote for Trump and against Sanders no matter what anyway. Um, but for a lot of, <laughs> a lot of Cuban-Americans, they didn't necessarily see any fault in what Sanders said. You know, they, they said, yeah, you know, it's an authoritarian state. There's a lot of things that aren't good about it, but it's ridiculous to say every single thing about it was bad. And, and yeah, you know, it, it did have a decent education system. And, you know, people weren't left to die of preventable diseases, uh, uh, you know, for, for, for lack of health care. So um, I'm not actually sure whether the strategy is is really based on all that much um, beyond just sort of a gut feeling that, well, you know, definitely every Cuban-American in Florida must be a, a right-wing maniac. And so therefore we must pan it. Right. I mean, and that strategy certainly didn't play out well in the 2016 election. We know how Hillary's campaign strategists were saying, you know, we'll gain, uh, I don't know, two moderates or Republicans for every progressive we lose or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And the polls are very worrying right now. It's pretty devastating, actually, to think that black support, Hispanic support could be so much more for Trump than the 2016 election. Just really stunning, the numbers that are coming out. I know that you've been tweeting a lot about Trump's ramping up of this authoritarianism and the Democrats' extremely tepid response to it. Just briefly talk about why you think they've been such an abject failure of a resistance party, barely enlisting any of their power to stop these horrific policies and nominations. Well, my, my theory is that Trump looked at this election and uh, he's obviously done such a terrible job uh, with the coronavirus, obviously, you know, 200,000 people dead, uh, the, the, the resulting economic crisis only getting worse and worse. Um, but he does have this core base of support that seems to uh, not waver no matter what he does. And I think, you know, having looked at what he did over four years, which was the exact opposite of what he promised people, uh, some of whom did genuinely vote for him because they thought, hey, maybe this guy's for real and maybe he does want to make my life better. Uh, and instead of doing that, of course, he did the usual mm -hmm. Republican thing. And so I think he realized I, I can't run on, you know, uh, having one, I can't run as the anti-establishment candidate. I can't run on having made people's lives like measurably be better, aside from the fact the economy was, was going well until coronavirus. Um, but then that that all went to shit, obviously, when um, uh, when the pandemic hit and his handling of it was so disastrous. And I think his strategy was uh, and, and continues to be, I am going to turn out my base. And even though a majority of the US public may dislike me or think I'm a disaster as a leader, I, I do have this core base of support that if I get them all to come out in huge numbers, uh, maybe I can win and maybe uh, I can benefit from the chaos that's going to happen um, come election day because uh, we already saw during the Democratic primary, half a million ballots were invalidated. Um, that was before you know, any shenanigans were done, or at least you know, any sort of conscious shenanigans were done. 
Um, and so it's it's easy to imagine a, a kind of uh, outcome where Trump's people excited and you know wearing the hats and, and, and stars and stripes shirts and everything, show up to the polls in person, vote in huge numbers for him. And Democrats who are mostly voting uh, by ballot, they see just enough of those invalidated. And that's before, you know, the usual Republican kind of uh, dirty tricks, uh, you know, make, make even more invalidated. On the other hand, the Democrats have taken this election, instead of trying to turn out their base, as Trump is doing, they're taking the approach of, we're going to, again, do the same thing we did in 2016. We're going to try and win over Republicans. We're going to try and win over more conservative people. And we're just going to assume that our normal base of support is going to have no choice but to vote because they want this maniac out. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that will turn out to be true. I don't know. At the moment, uh, Biden is leading among uh, you know, older people uh, and, and he's doing well in, in majority white states. Uh, so it could well end up being that the strategy works now because they've had this massive crisis that has sort of allowed them to try it. But it could also be uh, that, that, you know, they, they piss off their base and they don't turn out. Now, why is this relevant? Why is this very long buildup I'm giving relevant to the, the question about uh, confronting Trump's authoritarianism and, and the courts? Um, Trump can, at this point, really do whatever he wants, because all he's trying to do is he's trying to appeal to that base of voters. The Democrats can't, because they still have to... Uh, abide by these norms and procedures because they're trying to show themselves as the as a sort of cross-factional party, the, the ideologically diverse party. You know, we're the ones who aren't crazy. So therefore, if they do the the, the many variety of, of, um, of, of uh, measures that they could take to delay things and to obstruct and, and to slow things down, uh, they could end up losing those Republicans. And so they can't do that. They, they can't really resort to the kind of open warfare that Republicans would in an instant. Um, and so, you know, Trump Trump is going to be able to do whatever he wants because ultimately he's just trying to appeal to that, that narrow base of voters that are going to vote for him no matter what he does. As he said, if you shoot someone on, in, in Times Square, they're going to vote for him. Whereas the Democrats, because they've given up on their base, they sort of are, are playing by these old rules that, that really – have no requirement. And, and the result of that is that, you know, Trump can, can and is being ever more extreme and whether it's his, uh, his, his uh, views towards uh, protesters and that kind of thing, or, or you know, foreign policy, he, he has the room to do that. Indeed. And it, it is very scary to think how he might double down with a second term mandate. And it just goes back to you saying how we as leftists disenfranchised leftists by the millions in this country need to build up a counter narrative, need to build up an actual anti-war movement based on staunch anti-imperialism. Uh, thank you so much, Branko, for your time. Please tell our audience how they can find and support your work. Uh, yeah, you can look me up on, on Twitter. Uh, my handle is B uh, I, I have the H's in there. So, you know, <laughs> to make the pronunciation a little bit easier. Uh, they can also find me at Jacqueline Magazine, uh, where I'm a staff writer. I, I uh, write regularly there. Um, sometimes I write stuff for In These Times as well, another great magazine, and, and uh, uh, the one that, that Sarah Lazar, who you mentioned at the top of the program, she works for. Uh, and, you know, occasionally elsewhere, but generally all my stuff uh, ends up being posted on Twitter, so I look for it there. And everyone, get your book, uh, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Thank you so much for your time. 
Take care. Thanks for having me. If you liked what you heard on the podcast, please consider becoming a subscriber of ours on patreon.com slash media roots radio for $5 a month or per creation. You get access to one exclusive bonus episode per month. And right now we have a podcast series called the Freemasonic history of the United States. That's up to 15 hours of podcast content. Thanks for listening.